vibrations here at the house. I'm certain there's sex going on around here. What was it like to pose naked? Trigger dare, trigger dare. Okay. You wanna f us? Have you noticed your television set is oozing lust from almost every channel? If you can't find love, you settle for sex. If the child is watching, he's going to see 400,000 sex acts by the time he's 18 years old. How would you like to have a sexual encounter so intense? You are a bust between the sheets. Sex Madness. Coming soon to this theater. We've come a long way from the days when the movie code forbade any kiss that lasted longer than three seconds and where on-screen couples slept in separate beds. While few of us would like to see the popular arts return to such limited portrayals of life, love and sex are, after all, central to our humanity. There is nevertheless no question that biblically we have taken our liberty and turned it into a cloak with which to cover our vice and perversion. Popular culture has now all but obliterated man's distinction as something noble, as an image bearer of God. Film, television, and music have effectively reduced him to a hairless ape, living in an amoral universe where desire rules and where any barriers to its fulfillment are to be torn down and destroyed. Let's take a look at what happened and how it came about. Hello. Hello. You look at me as if you didn't know me. Well, I don't. During what is commonly called the golden age of movies, a 40-year period that began in the late 1920s, there was a strong moral consensus in America, a consensus based primarily upon the teachings of Scripture. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. To be sure, many people gave these values little more than lip service. By them, we may continue in thy service, O Lord, all the days of our life. Amen. But they nevertheless remain the goal to which our culture collectively aspired. Out of these beliefs came a conviction that the film industry should use its newfound influence over a movie-hungry public to positive ends, seeking to inspire rather than merely titillate. In 1921, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America was formed with the express goal of ensuring the highest possible moral and artistic standards in motion picture production. In 1927, the Hayes Code was established in order to certify, among many other things, that no movie was produced that would lower the moral standards of those who see it. By 1928, President Coolidge, a committed Christian, would call movies one of the greatest forces for good and for civilization, and Warner Brothers would have as its motto, Good films, good citizenship. And a few years later, incredible as it may seem today, Christian leaders were invited to come to Hollywood and help supervise film production in order to further ensure the moral propriety of all new releases. So began the Legion of Decency's almost 30-year reign, as well as the creation of many of our best and most enduring films. For many years, the church was the predominant influence in Hollywood. During the golden age of Hollywood, where people look back to fondly when Mr. Smith went to Washington and it was a wonderful life and the bells of St. Mary rang out across the land and the sound of music could be heard and theaters all over the place. It was just a beautiful time. And that beautiful time was because the church was intimately involved in every production. You had the Protestant uh, film office and the Roman Catholic Legion of Decency and they would read the scripts and they would check up on the 
Uh, in fact, my friend George Heimrich, who headed up the Protestant Film Office, he would take a script aside and he would say to him, look, how many empty seats do you want in the theater? If you put in this word, you're going to have people who won't come to see the movie. If you say it this way, you're going to uh, hurt youth. So he would go out and rewrite the scenes. I can't tell you how many scripts would, must have been rewritten by the Protestant Film Office and by the Roman Catholic Legion of Decency. And Hollywood prospered under that system. But beneath the surface of this golden age, other forces conspired to move the culture in a different direction. Some artists resented the moral constraints of a God they neither knew or understood and sought, through their art, to stretch the moral boundaries of the code. I've come to ask you to make your peace with God. I am at peace with God. My conflict is with man. Have you no remorse for your sin? Who knows what sin is? born as it was from heaven, from God's fallen angel. Increasingly, their ideas found support in a Hollywood community where the seductions of money, fame, and sex left many people morally confused. Boss won't be back for an hour. Well, then why don't we go in and talk this over? This spiritual decline also opened a wide door to false gods and alternative religions. Eastern mysticism, humanism, New Age thinking, and even the occult steadily chipped away at the industry's Judeo-Christian consensus. Sadly, the rest of America wasn't far behind. Titillation became a way of drawing both controversy and crowds as national morals waned. The advent of television only exacerbated the situation as Hollywood was forced to compete for an audience that can now stay home and be entertained. And finally, Supreme Court rulings on obscenity, nudity, and free speech prepared the way for a final assault on the movie code. You want entertainment, wholesome, interesting, and vital? This, the motion picture industry, is pledged to provide. All these factors contributed to the end of this golden era. But none was more important or more tragic than the underlying reality that the church had quit being the church and the salt had lost its savor. By the middle of the century, many professing Christians had little zeal for either the Lord or the real needs of the culture around them. They became spiritually lazy, succumbing on the one hand to dry pharisaical attitudes that insisted upon a sanitized world where married couples slept in separate beds and everyone lived happily ever after. Or, and here's where the majority fell, throwing off God's commandments altogether and embracing the licentious and rebellious spirit that has come to characterize the second half of the century. As a result, the Christian film offices were closed, the code was abandoned, and a new era began. And what an era it has become. You need to appeal to an audience's basic motive for going to a movie. To be entertained. No, to be titillated, to go to the movies to be titillated, to see sex. One film historian gleefully described the mood of the culture as the movie code was dying and the sexual revolution was coming to life. When the Hayes Code was finally abolished in 1966, the timing couldn't have been better. The radical youth movement with its emphasis on free love was at its peak, as was wife swapping. Naturally, Hollywood studios were eager to capitalize on these hot sexual trends. The effect on the American public was intoxicating, and the long box office lines around the country encouraged Hollywood to keep going further until every taboo was shattered 
in the name of commerce. Shatter taboos they did. One by one, Hollywood broke and then tried to erase every word the Lord has ever spoken on the subject of sex. It just seems wrong. It's not. Look, it's just nice feelings. It's something that we've never done before. It's physical fun. It's, it's just sex. Oh, come on, it'll be fun. Where God expressly forbids sex before marriage, likening it to idolatry and stating in the strongest language possible that no fornicator has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. The edited version in Hollywood reads, thou shalt lose thy virginity at the earliest opportunity, preferably on prime time. Okay, okay, a man is a lot of things, but he's not a virgin. Are you a virgin? You've shown us the seven places you lost your virginity? It's easy for you to say. You already lost your virginity. 37 girls from my senior class lost their virginity this summer. Now, that puts virgins in the minority. I'm not making it with him. I'm not making it with anyone. I never make it with anyone. I'm a... You are for real? What was the last movie you saw that really encouraged you to abstain from sex prior to marriage? Oh, wow. <laughs> what was the last movie that you saw that really encouraged you to abstain from sex prior to marriage? Abstain from sex? Yeah. Sure, it wasn't. <laughs> I've never seen one. Never seen one. No. <laughs> you want it. I want it. You know I want it. Many movies today, especially the ones the industry calls horny boy films, those targeted at teens, extol sex for sex's sake, using it as the primary focus for plot, action, dialogue, and just about everything else. So you guys excited? For example, the box office phenomenon Porky's, a movie that cost $5 million to make and has to date grossed over $180 million, is about little more than the central character's quest for sexual satisfaction. Throughout the film, boys and girls alike are shown treating themselves and their sexuality with all the dignity of dogs in heat. The closing credits roll over his supposed triumph as he is serviced by a classmate on a school bus while friends shout their approval. NBC dresses up this theme a bit with the character of Joey in their hit teen comedy, Blossom. Joey, it becomes like any other job. You just get used to the fact that you're naked. Oh, I can never get used to you naked. Where the Apostle Paul challenged his teenage disciple Timothy to be an example of holy conduct and sexual purity, Joey's character perpetuates one of the most powerful self-fulfilling prophecies in Hollywood that all teenage boys are exempt from self-control because of their raging hormones. To these prophets of perversion, even non-consensual sex seems cute. think he can teach me how to do that? Of course, this emphasis on fornication is by no means unique to the teen audience. The popular CBS adult comedy, Love and War, had their principal characters discussing sex on their first date. So, your condom or mine? <laughs> and then going well beyond mere conversation by the second. 
Even when the industry tries to bring an element of morality into their many and varied depictions of extramarital sex, it is rarely, if ever, more than a slight admonition to wait until you really know, care, or love the person you're with. What's right is what you feel. All the right moves begins with the girl holding out against Tom Cruise's passionate advances. But by the third reel, well, somehow, the time is now right, and she's the one making all the right moves. Forget for just a moment the blatant rejection of God's standards all this represents. The insanity of this type of moral subjectivism should be obvious from just a common sense perspective. I mean people, particularly young people, who have focused their will and their emotions on the things of this world instead of on God, can and do fall in and out of, quote, love in the space of a weekend, sometimes just an evening, in a world where everyone wants someone to love and be loved by. Saying, wait until you really care, is like saying, don't eat this, unless you're hungry. Sooner or later you will be. And then what happens? I'm a little nervous. I never know it. The stupidity of this type of moral compromise can be clearly seen in the infamous episode where Doogie Howser lost his virginity. The show went out of its way to set Doogie up as a paradigm of teen responsibility. Armed with a condom, he only has sex after he falls in love. But wait, by the very next episode, she wants to break it off because, and I'm not making this up, the light has changed for her in their relationship. Maybe the light's changed for us too. The heartbroken Doogie is left with nothing but his trusty computer, whereon he writes those bittersweet words of consolation. You can't hold on to the past and still ride off into the future. That this irony was unintentional is, to me, one of the scariest things in this entire presentation. The scariest, however, are the simple facts of where all this has led us. 72% of the teenagers say they want to copy what they see in sexually explicit or violent films. In fact, uh, several studies have shown that 22% uh, of teenage crime is directly related to what they see in violent movies and television programs. There have been over 3,000 studies done in this regard, and uh, the studies are just conclusive on the fact that they're... In an article on teen sexuality, the New York Times noted, According to numerous studies of teenage sexuality, America's youth increasingly view sexual behavior as a matter of personal choice. They look to the media and their peers for appropriate sexual practices. Youth believe that they are entitled to have sex, and the popular culture seems to support their beliefs. The popular media's message has come home to roost with a vengeance. Well over half of today's unmarried teens between the ages of 15 and 19 are sexually active. In a survey of almost 20,000 teens by Sassy Magazine, 16 was agreed upon as the best age to lose one's virginity. Where's Tommy Page? Tell him his love slave is ready to fulfill his every wish. And among evangelical young people, the situation is scarcely improved. 43% have had sex by age 18, and 36% are not able to state that sexual intercourse is morally wrong outside of marriage. 
And of course, all this sexual activity now comes at a cost that goes well beyond the terrible spiritual and emotional damage immorality wrecks upon an individual. Today, one out of every seven teenagers this next year will acquire a sexually transmitted disease. A generation ago, there were five such diseases. Today, there are over 50. Several are incurable, and at least two are fatal. Moving on now to the blessed state of matrimony, to the context in which, according to God, sex is to occur and be enjoyed. Well, again, there's a lot of heavy breathing going on. You don't get married nine times without realizing that men are necessary either. But there's a catch. In a scientific study of the context in which sex occurs on television, researchers found most references to intercourse on television occur between unmarried partners. References to intercourse with prostitutes came in second. Sex between married people came in last. PBS television critic and author Michael Medved has noted, apparently some stern decree has gone out from the upper reaches of the Hollywood establishment that love between married people must never be portrayed on the screen. If a wedding occurs in the course of a film, it invariably marks the conclusion of a romance. The popular yuppie film, The Big Chill, tried to make the crescendo of adulterous activity that closed the movie seem normal even wholesome. Ditto the same time next year, where a couple gets together and cheats on their respective spouses one weekend a year for 26 years. The box office smash Thelma and Louise practically shouted its feminist screed that men are bums and fulfillment for a woman can only be found after she's left her husband. In one particularly telling scene, Brad Pitt removes Gina Davis's wedding ring as if it was a ball and chain and then proceeds to show both her and the audience how wonderful adultery can be. Oh, my God, it's like... <laughs> I finally understand what a little fuss is about now. It's just like, oh, another ball. Oh, darling, I'm so happy for you. That's great. I really am. Partners change so often on the afternoon in primetime soaps that magazines and newspapers do a brisk business just keeping score. In a thousand places, and in as many ways, the entertainment industry reflects what a majority of its insiders personally believe. Thou shalt commit adultery. You want to make love to my wife, but you're afraid you'll get caught. You are insane, Eddie. This is how you die. These little things you deny yourself. Given the fact that so many in the entertainment industry view sex as a great tool to make money, it's no wonder that prostitution is another taboo the industry has shattered with a vengeance. This has a whorehouse in it. In this 1982 film, Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton tried to put a fun face on pimping and harlotry. Prostitution! One values-free reviewer wrote, Night shift leaves you feeling refreshed. You sympathize with these women because they're only trying to make a living at what they do best. And you root for the odd couple of Winkler and Keaton because they are ensuring efficient, clean, quality service. Prostitution is probably one of the most moral things in the world. A year later, Warner Brothers followed with risky business. While the studio cleaned up at the box office, Tom Cruise and Rebecca De Mornay gave the world a pathetic object lesson on how harlotry can supposedly help a boy grow up, become cool, get rich, 
and gain entrance to the college of his choice. My name is Joel Goodson. I deal in human fulfillment. I grossed over $8,000 in one night. Time of your life, huh, kid? Hey, Sugar, you looking for a date? As morally bankrupt as these films are, however, they run a distant second to Touchstone Pictures' 1990 blockbuster, Pretty Woman. This film, which has grossed nearly a quarter of a billion dollars, is a masterpiece of seduction. An extremely well-crafted movie with attractive and talented actors, Pretty Woman puts a new spin on an old storyline, one that transcends both time and culture. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in all our hearts, that there's an echo of an infinite world and a divine relationship from which we, in our sinfulness, have fallen. It's from this God-shaped vacuum, as the philosopher Pascal called it, that our urge for transcendence, our need for religious meaning, arises. And it's also from here that we respond to certain archetypes or allegorical truths that lie behind the surface of any great story. One of the most powerful of these is the tale of a woman who is delivered from some severe difficulty by a gallant redeemer who then marries her. This is the story of Ruth and Boaz in the Bible and, of course, Cinderella in the world of fantasy. Ultimately, all these point to the story of God coming to earth and dying as a man in order to redeem for himself a people who are to become his bride. Pretty Woman takes this wonderful archetype and, as Julia's best friend says, one whore to another, puts the F word right in the middle of it. Cinderella. <laughs> Among the many lies this glittering abomination foist upon its audience are, being a whore can be glamorous. The penthouse. You can be sexually active and still hold something back for that special someone. What do you do? Everything but I don't kiss on the mouth. If girls in particular were to stop believing this deception, the instances of illicit sex in this culture would be cut in half overnight. Fornication can lead to true love and a storybook marriage. He climbed up the tower and rescued her. The original screenplay tried to maintain a small degree of integrity by ending the movie on an honest note. He left and she went back to the streets. But integrity matters little when there's a quarter of a billion dollars to be made. Another sexual sin the Bible plainly condemns is homosexuality. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both have committed an abomination. We set up our date, and I proceeded to spend the rest of my weekend with him in bliss, and, uh, and it was great. It should come as no surprise that in an industry where the only bad desire is an unfulfilled one, homosexuality also gets the Hollywood seal of approval. Because homosexuality is unnatural and sin. According to whom? Pious clergymen and terrified heterosexuals. Oh, them. Melrose Place, L.A. Law, The Real World, 30-something, Northern Exposure, Murphy Brown and Roseanne are just some of the TV shows that have consciously set out to portray homosexuality as just another lifestyle choice. 
Even more tragic are the industry's attempts to inform through so-called reality-based programming. In one HBO after-school special, for example, a young man struggling with his sexual identity is given an ultimate lesson in values-free morality. Todd, if you are homosexual, it doesn't mean your life is over or you're condemned to some bleak, perverted existence. All it means is that you're going to be living a different lifestyle. And, and there's no reason it can't be very dignified and fulfilling. There's a lot of wisdom in what the counselor is saying to both him and the audience. But it's wisdom from hell. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. These are just four of the biblically-based taboos the entertainment industry has shattered. There are many others. Nudity, for example, has become so accepted, even expected, that when director Paul Verhoeven walked onto the set for the film Total Recall, his first comment was, how can we put more blank and blank into this movie? Now, even the networks have begun to get into the act. Incest is no longer the unspeakable sin. Dozens of films have been produced that explore intra-family sex, most of them from a positive perspective. Sadomasochism and bondage themes routinely crop up in everything from the afternoon soaps to high fashion, from the Hollywood blockbuster to the world of rock and roll. Multiple partners, bestiality, there seems to be no perversion too sick that it can't be explored today in film or song. Are you going to follow the rules? Or are you going to follow your instincts? And now, with virtual reality technology and its potential for computer-simulated sex waiting in the wings, there just might not be any limit to our capacity for perversion. Serial sex killer Ted Bundy just hours before he was executed, uttered this sobering observation in a conversation with Christian psychologist Dr. James Dobson. And what scares and appalls me, Dr. Dobson, is when I see what's on cable TV, <laughs> some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies uh, that come into homes today with stuff that they, that they wouldn't show in X-rated adult theaters 30 years ago. Another sex killer, this time a fictional one from the movie Clute, said something equally prophetic. Here, the murderer explains the origin of his perversions to his intended victim, a prostitute played by Jane Fonda. Ironically, his comment is even more applicable to a culture that has become the willing victim of the whoredoms of Hollywood. You make a man think that he's accepted. It's all just a great big game to you prey upon the sexual fantasies of others. But that's your stock and trade, isn't it, a man's weakness? And I was never really fully aware of mine until you brought them out. This is the great tragedy of modern entertainment. The dark passions of the human heart are being evoked in the name of money, catharsis, art, honesty, liberty, the excuses go on and on. But like all rebellious quests for freedom, this one too has ended up in slavery. Marriages collapse at record rates. Sexual impotence is on the rise. Rape, child abuse, and other sexual crimes are skyrocketing. People now even routinely die from simply having sex. And still we insist 
that God doesn't know what he's talking about. And no wonder. Many people seem to think that he's a prude who wants his people to abhor physical pleasure and view sex as somehow dirty. It's nothing but sex, sex, sex. Now, we're not denying that there have been and still are Christians like Natalie Wood's mother in Splendor in the Grass who have viewed the act of making love as something less than the Lord intended. A woman doesn't enjoy those things the way a man does. She just lets her husband come near her in order to have children. This sad and unbiblical attitude is, no doubt, one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in today. God can never bless fear or legalism or a worldview that makes life less than he designed it to be. The good news of the gospel is that sex isn't dirty, it's sacred. And that's why people who love God hate to see it dragged through the mud and stripped of its beauty and mystery. And a glorious mystery it is. Listen. The Bible tells us we were created in God's likeness. Male and female, he made us together in his image. In other words, it's only as a man is joined intimately with a woman, so intimately in fact that they become one, that most of us can attain some degree of wholeness as image bearers of God. Then mankind fell from grace. As a result of our sin, we've lost everything but a dim vestige, the faint ash of the holy fire that is the image and character of our Heavenly Father. We're now locked in these ego boxes, self-aware, self-obsessed, conscious of our nakedness, and duly ashamed. But through the mystery of marriage and sex, particularly since Christ has atoned for our sins and made a way for us to return to paradise, a man and a woman can, to a small but hopefully ever-increasing degree, come together and return to this original Edenic state. Before God, sanctified by the covenant of marriage, they can lose themselves in each other's lives and hearts, they can be naked and unashamed. They can give and in the giving receive great pleasure. They can, O oh wonder of wonders, incarnate another human being, another image bearer of Almighty God through their love and the physical expression of that love. This is the truth that Satan seeks to destroy. This is the beauty that so many in Hollywood want to efface. And this is the mystery that Christians must strive to reveal. The Bible tells us that as Christians, as the body of Christ, the church, we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth in a world bound by lies. Jesus calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world, granting us the awesome privilege and responsibility of shining His light into a dark world, of ministering the preservative of His gospel in a creation decaying through sin. The early church took this commission very seriously, resisting sin in their generation to a degree that often cost them their very lives. Can't we at least turn off our televisions? <laughs>